This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. being talked about big time at Sun Valley at Allen & Co.'s annual conference. It brings together folks from media and technology. Well, they are talking big time about the Disney Comcast battle for 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. Our Nabila Ahmed is there. She's media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in Sun Valley. Also with us, Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence in our New York studio. Paul, I do want to start with you, though, because Things changed again today in this pursuit, Disney uh, and Comcast pursuit of um, the entertainment assets of 21st Century Fox. Sky did something. That's right, yes. Uh, <laughs> so we, people have to remember there's a, a lot of moving pieces here. It's kind of um, multi-level chess. We've got Disney uh, and Comcast uh, both bidding for uh, 21st Century Fox, the U.S. company, and for Sky. Now, Sky is owned uh, – 39% of Sky is owned by Fox, so we have uh, kind of – Two big buyers bidding on two marquee assets in the marketplace. Um, So today's news was that uh, Fox, um, 21st Century Fox, uh, actually increased its bid uh, for Sky that it doesn't own um, to about uh, to 14 pounds, a little bit below where the stock is trading. So now that puts the ball back in Comcast court. What do you want to do with your bid for Sky? Uh, And more importantly, what do you want to do with your bid for overall for 21st Century Fox? So um, I think Nabila is probably at ground zero in Sky, you know, Sun Valley. Nabila, what are they saying about all of this? Listen, we saw Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch go into the morning panel this morning at, a, at about 7 o'clock, and uh, it, there was a, a sweet little moment. We were trying to get them to say something, and Rupert pointed to Lachlan and said, ask him, and Lachlan pointed to his dad and said, ask him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think at this moment, it's anybody's guess. I saw Brian Roberts earlier walking around the resort on his phone. He's obviously got um, a decision or two to make here. We, uh, you know, we expect Comcast to come and come and up its bid on Sky, but we also expect that they are still interested in the rest of the Fox assets. That's what, you know, that's what our sources are telling us. Um, it's just, it's it's a very tricky situation, and it's literally everybody is abuzz here with talk of that. Everybody wants to know what Rupert's going to do and uh, who he will choose ultimately. Hey, what about the other big player, high-profile player, Bob Iger of Disney? Have you guys seen him? Any comments from him? We haven't seen Bob Iger yet. He was actually meant to be coming in today. So he didn't arrive yesterday, which is the traditional sort of arrival day. Today, the panels have already got underway. They're just setting up for, for lunch in front of us. Um, but no, we haven't spotted him yet. Although I did just see um, Tim Cook of Apple walk into the uh, cafe maybe to just grab a... Such a name dropper you are. Um, Hey, hey, Paul Sweeney, you know, this is an event we all watch because big deals, media deals do come out of it. What's the... Give us a little bit of a background on this, right? This is where these guys do 
you know, carve out things. Yeah, this is uh, Herb Allen of Allen & Company, a boutique investment bank, a very high-quality investment bank that's uh, historically focused on the media and entertainment businesses. And, uh, you know, probably, geez, I don't know how long this conference has been around, more than 20 years. Um, it's been an opportunity for, uh, you know, the traditional media moguls and all the wannabe media moguls can get together out there and uh, – and hobnob and, and um, what's happened as a result of this when you put uh, CEOs together with uh, investment bankers is you <laughs> often get uh, lots of deals. And uh, over the years, we've seen some significant uh, M&A uh, chatter and significant M&A deals, for that matter, actually get hatched uh, at this conference or even closed at this conference. So um, I think this year the expectations were very high uh, given all that's going on uh, in the media and telecom and telecommunic uh, and uh, technology spaces. Everybody's talking to everybody. So I think the expectations for this year are particularly high uh, that maybe we'll get some movement on a lot of these deals. And that includes not just all the Fox and Comcast stuff, but maybe even CBS and Viacom. What's going on there? Uh, that's news that will play out this summer. Maybe we'll get some headway there. So um, there's reason to really focus on what's coming out of this conference because everybody is in the same room yeah. uh, and everybody has incentive to talk to everybody. Nabila Paul brings up, uh, you know, Viacom, CBS, Sherry Redstone. Is she there? Uh, I'm just curious, you know, she's been trying to bring these companies back together. She's definitely here. She gave us a nice wave and a, a hello yesterday as she came in. We saw her again today. She said she's enjoying the conference. They had a cryptocurrency panel earlier this morning that she attended that she thought was very interesting. Um, it's very tricky because Leslie Moonverse of CBS is also here. He came in yesterday and he's typically um, pretty media friendly, but he didn't speak to us yesterday. Um, you remember these guys are locked in a legal battle, so mm -hmm. we're not expecting um, a lot from them here. Um, but again, that's another thing that people are talking about and people are wondering whether they end up at the same functions. You, I understand they weren't at the same function last night. <laughs> but, uh, hey, listen, you guys did, you and Alex Barinka, who are there, I know a bunch of our team uh, members are there, uh, did catch up with David Zaslov of Discovery. He's the president there. I mean, everything that's going on, the demand for content, um, you know, what means he's also being looked at potentially. Yeah, look, he's pretty cock-a-hoop about all of this, and his take on the Fox uh, Fox bidding war isn't that we've we've reached peak valuation. It's that if Fox goes for that much, that just shows how much more valuable my business is and how undervalued I am. So he, he said to us yesterday that he definitely expects the street to take another look at Discovery, and of course, um, I'd be interested in Paul's thoughts here as well, but whoever misses out yeah. on the Fox assets, you know, um, Discovery may be one of the things they look at, um, to pull together right. the same sort of string of pearls. Um, he also talked about Endemol, um, which is a business that's up for sale at the moment, and he said they would have a look at that as right. well. Paul, is there anybody, when you look at other media companies that are ripe for doing something, just got about 20 seconds? Yeah, I just think, uh, as Nabila brought up the Discovery, a lot of people were saying whoever doesn't get 21st Century Fox, you could buy Discovery and maybe a couple other things out there and kind of replicate to some degree what you didn't win with Fox. Great stuff. Uh, certainly a lot going on in the media world. Um, Paul Sweeney, thank you so much. U.S. Director of Research, Senior Media Internet Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. Nabila Ahmed, Media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in Sun Valley. You're you're listening to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. All right, 
yeah. So preparing for this segment, I checked out the MSCI World Index. little change so far this year. If you take the U.S. out from the developed world index, that performance, that index, is down 4.6% this year. So let's dig into international investing. Sal Bruno is Chief Investment Officer at Index uh, IQ. He joins us on the phone in New York. Sal, nice to have you uh, with us on this Wednesday. Uh, when you look around the world, you guys have a bunch of investment products, you know, looking to tap into that. Um, you're playing it really, what, from a currency angle? That's right, and thanks for having me on the program today. You know, we think that international investing, despite the relative weakness that we've seen kind of since the trade uh, wars uh, began kind of around the middle of uh, April, you know, we've had a lot of weakness internationally, um, not only in terms of the international equity markets themselves and their local currency, but as you clearly mentioned and rightly mentioned, that the currencies have also taken a big hit. So if we look through the first three and a half months of the year, you know, the U.S. dollar is actually weaker relative to the rest of the world by almost about two and a half percent. That changed pretty dramatically once President Trump started talking about some of the, the trade tariffs. Um, we saw a sharp reversal there where the dollar has actually strengthened quite a bit relative to the rest of the countries. We've seen fairly strong performance out of the U.S. equity market um, on an absolute basis. It's actually positive since that time period, and especially so on a relative um, uh, relative front, relative to pretty much all the emerging markets, the developed markets, um, and especially relative to China. And so when we think about what's kind of going on here, you have to think about, well, we have two components of the returns. What's happening in the local currency and the local market? And then how does that translate it back into U.S. dollars for dollar-denominated investor? And so that currency piece becomes a really important part of, of thinking about the investment landscape. Right. It can turn, you know, an underperforming asset into a overperforming or, you know, uh, you know, and vice versa. Like, you really do have to look at the, the currency impact. I should point out, too, the dollar's up about 6% from about mid-April. So we certainly have seen a, a significant move uh, in the U.S. currency related to other currencies. All right. So... What are some of your thoughts? Let's get let's get a little bit more specific. Yeah, so one of the things we talk about and the way our investment strategies are actually designed is basically from the premise that calling the direction of any currency relative or the dollar relative to any currency is actually very difficult. And especially when it, if you're in a, a diversified international portfolio, you're compounded by the fact that you're actually making calls against multiple currencies at the same time. Clearly, the euro is a dominant currency in Europe, but there are other currencies, the Swiss franc, Norwegian krona, etc. Then in, a, in an international portfolio, you need to throw in uh, the Japanese yen and other uh, Asian currencies as well. And so trying to, trying to forecast that is actually very difficult. And as you mentioned, you know, with the dollar up 6% since the middle of April, mm-hmm. the timing of that can be really difficult. So we saw the dollar down about 2.5% through the middle of April. Um, and so what happens, what we see for a lot of retail investors, is they tend to chase the performance. So they see that the dollar is weak, and they say, okay, I don't need to be hedged in my portfolio because the dollar is weak, and I'm invested in, in local markets that have stronger currencies. And they tend to start removing those currencies, and often that happens at the worst possible time, because then we see something happen like the trade tariffs get announced, and you see things reverse 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and then, boy, do you wish you had that currency in place. Uh, But the timing of that could be pretty difficult. Let me just break in for a second, Sal, because I do wonder if uh, things are getting back to maybe to some extent more normal when it comes to to global central bank policy, right? We've been in unprecedented or been in an unprecedented time for over a decade or so in terms of very, very easy monetary policy. But things are starting to, you know, where the economies, global economies are getting back to normal and global central banks are getting back to normal. Doesn't that, though, help you kind of figure out more clearly where various currencies are going and and maybe you don't have to hedge so much? 
Well, it depends. I mean, over longer periods of time, that may be true, but currencies tend to be mean reverting over, over extended periods of time. But the problem is most people don't have that time horizon when they're looking at their investments. They tend to be much shorter focused and, quite honestly, react a lot more to current trends where we see a lot more volatility, where the, the currency move is not always dictated um, by, by central bank policy. It could be dictated by a number of other things. And so, so those intervening periods where investors tend to start moving money back and forth, and that's really where they can destroy value in their portfolio if they're trying to go fully hedge, 100% hedge, back to unhedged or vice versa. So, so one of the things that... Yeah, go ahead, please. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that we think is actually a fairly uh, easy solution um, that pretty much anybody can implement is to basically take a 50% hedge. So instead of trying to say, well, I think the dollar is going to, to strengthen, therefore I need to take a 100% hedge on my international investments, um, maybe I'll take a 50% because there's a decent chance I'm actually be wrong over my investable horizon. Right. Um, and the other thing you get into is, you know, you have, there is sort of this global central bank, but each individual country or the block region in Europe has their own central bank. And sometimes they're moving at different points. We're starting to see decoupling now with the U.S. versus Europe. Um, and in fact, we see the yen has actually been stronger relative to the dollar, while the euro has been uh, negative relative to the dollar. So if you're in a diversified international portfolio and you want to say, okay, well, what do I do? Do I, do I hedge one and not the other? But if you're using broad ETFs to get the exposure, that becomes a little bit more challenging to try to to isolate individual currency exposures. Got it. Thank you so much. Sal Bruno, Chief Investment Officer at Index IQ, joining us on the phone from New York. All right, everybody. Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, he could have a sweeping impact on American life if he is confirmed for the job. So writes our Garrett DeVink. He is technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Garrett sitting right next to me. Um, good story. Fascinating story. Just put it out on Twitter so everybody can read it in full. But Tell us what's going on when you wrote this story, like what you were digging into. I mean, everyone is sort of, you know, regardless of what you cover, what you write about, what you think about, I mean, everyone's sort of asking the question of how will, what does Kavanaugh think? I feel bad for people who've worked with him in the past, maybe even his college friends, because they're probably getting a million reporters. Everybody's calls bothering them, right? Every day. And, you know, essentially at this point, there's very little for us to go on beyond his sort of paper trail or the, the cases that he's looked at. And when it comes to tech... But there is a pretty wide there is, and paper he, trail. Exactly. And it, it's going to be, you know, extremely sort of, you know, excavated over the, the coming months, especially when he goes to to Senate for the for the confirmation. But, you know, I would say if you're interested in tech, the most important case in terms of things that are right in front of us right now is about net neutrality. And so he didn't actually make a decision that sort of changed... Um, the the path, the winding path of net neutrality law in the United States. But he did dissent against a previous ruling that sort of reaffirmed the Barack Obama era net neutrality rules, which, as we know, have now been legislated away. But he was someone who did not believe in net neutrality as it's, as it's prop, uh, commonly understood. He believed that companies like AT&T, AT&T and Verizon had a free speech right. That's the way he reasoned it to decide what went over their wires and what didn't and at what speed. And net neutrality meant those internet ISPs, the internet service providers, could not pick and choose whose content moved around the net faster. They they couldn't say that, oh, Netflix is willing to pay more, so they'll go faster, whereas YouTube isn't, and they'll go slower. And he said they have that exactly that right. And he he said it not because, you know, they're a business and because they built the cables, but because they have a free speech right to it. So you can kind of see, I mean, this is a traditionally conservative, uh, you know, 
know, view sort of pro-business or kind of pro-private enterprise, um, you know, decision. Right. And um, But it's interesting. You can kind of see the depths of his conservatism and how he thinks by the way that he sort of framed it in First Amendment terms. Um, any other um, things? Because I think he's also uh, weighed in a little bit on privacy, right? Yeah, so he did, you know, he... The Edward Snowden uh, yeah. government surveillance of cell phone meta- metadata, so that's the you know location where calls are made from, the phone numbers to and from. He actually said that those when the government was sucking up all that data, hoovering it up, that that wasn't a impingement on the individual right to privacy. And of course, that's very different from you know Facebook and what they do with data and what they do with privacy. But it does kind of you know at least. It's something that we can kind of go on that that he says, you know, there's sort of a high bar when it comes to the right to privacy in the United States. It's very interesting and fascinating if you think about, you know, Facebook executives and other social media executives before members of Congress getting grilled Mm -hmm. about privacy, right? So it's interesting to see his take on this. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the interesting thing, of course, is, you know, going forward now, if he is confirmed how he will sort of apply those things. And, and, and another thing I, I should bring up is when he made that argument about um, net neutrality, he actually was sort of reaching out in his dissent to Amazon, to Facebook and saying, look, if if you want the government to sort of tell big companies what they can and can't do on your platform, aren't you concerned that in the future the government may say to Amazon, hey, you you have to let everyone sell on Amazon or, hey, Facebook, you have to let certain people, you know, Share their opinions, right, even where if does you it don't stop, want to. Right? Exactly, that was sort of his, he hmm. called it a slippery slope. And you know, you can see the big tech companies—they're a lot less loud on issues like net neutrality than they used to be, because they are becoming the dominant parts of corporate America, and they 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 want pro business, pro private enterprise right. um, judges on the court. It's been really good for them so far, potentially. Um, hey, you also talk about a, a case involving drones where he was involved. Let's yeah, get into so that there was the um, you smile. You know, yeah, it, it was sort of the 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 uh, you know the Federal Aviation um, Administration sort of clamped down you know pretty famously in the United States on on you know recreational drone users you know they they said you had to have a license that it wasn't the same as having you know just a little uh, remote control helicopter and that actually prompted some companies like Amazon to go you know abroad for their drone testing of like delivery drones and that kind of thing and he uh, did a, a ruling that sort of struck down that. Um, regulation. Initially, he said, look, private people should be able to fly drones if they want to. And that sort of shows his kind of anti-regulation streak, which is something that's very clear if you look at, at his history. Garrett, what what big tech ca- cases? I think you, you note in your story, one about Apple, right, co- that will come before the Supreme Court. Is that correct? There's there's a, an, a case about Apple's App Store that essentially is, it, it's a little bit, you know, in the nitty gritty, but essentially what the root of the matter is getting at is an antitrust trust question, right? So Apple has this app store. If you want to have an app on an iPhone as a developer, you have to go to the app store. And a lot of the time Apple says you can't go to other app uh, app stores if you're going to be on the Apple app store. Mm -hmm. And so there's this question of whether, you know, Apple by charging these sort of commissions and by sort of, you know, asking for exclusivity for their app store, whether that is an antitrust question, whether Apple is being unfair and uncompetitive and the iPhone is just so powerful that the regular consumer can't escape Apple's grasp and Apple is taking advantage of that fact. So this could be a a case that Kavanaugh, if confirmed, will get to have his say on. Um, You know, face value, does it look like the technology sector needs to be worried about I would him say, if he gets confirmed. We're, we're it, running ahead a little bit, but... Of course. I mean, I would say there's a few things going on here. If you're, if you're one of the biggest companies, 
you know, frankly, you probably want someone who is sort of anti-government regulation, yeah. someone who wants is skeptical about the government um, interfering in the in the private sector. If you're Amazon, your Facebook, your Google, you want that kind of thing. You want to be able to go and make your own rules for your own platforms without the government jumping in and saying you can and cannot do this. And he's the kind of person that will make that those rulings. I mean, th we have this dynamic going on in tech now where it's actually very hard to compete with Amazon. It's very hard to compete with Facebook because of the network effects, because of the power that they have. And so, you know, although up until this point, these companies have been all about, you know, disruption and pushing out, you know, old incumbent and sort of legacy industries. Yeah. Now it's become very hard to do the same to them. And they're definitely in the position where they want their power to be further entrenched. So you kind of have the split within the tech industry between the small companies and the big ones. Yeah, it is kind of fascinating, right, how giant these guys have come, mm -hmm. right? And they've been around for a while now at this point, whether it's Facebook or Google, Google or Apple. Um, but all of a sudden we're realizing, certainly something like Amazon, how mm -hmm. they are reaching into so many different parts of our world at this point. And whether, you know, is this, you know, becoming too big a company, you know, President Trump has certainly targeted Amazon right. several times. Well, so President Trump has a very strong opinion that Amazon is too powerful and that they're, you know, I don't think a lot of that is to do with the Washington Post and the fact that they write stories that he doesn't like and that they're owned by Jeff Bezos. But, you know, the antitrust question, specifically as it comes to Amazon, should it be broken up? I mean, this might be a question that comes before the court. Right. But Kavanaugh has shown that he's pro-business. He's pro-business. I mean, he, you know, what, yeah. when it comes to antitrust still, I mean, yeah, it's another question, but we'll see. Good stuff. Certainly things to think about as uh, we move through this process uh, of nomination and confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice. Thank you so much. Thank Garrett DeVink, he's technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check him out on Twitter at Garrett D. And he's joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Wednesday. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, a lot of pushing, it feels like, back and forth between what many believe are global allies. And many say, too, we are in a trade war. NATO leaders, of course, meeting in Brussels as all of this is happening. President Trump pushing his trade conflict with China toward a point where neither side can back down. Let's get an update on this. Andrew Maeda is global trade and economy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Washington, D.C. Also with us, Christina Vittori, associate professor of political science at West Virginia University, on the phone from Morgantown, West Virginia. Andrew, let me kick it off with you. Trade word is there a trade war underway? I mean, where are we? What's the latest? I think it's increasingly getting difficult to argue that we're not in a trade war. Uh, so what happened yesterday was the uh, Trump administration published a list of a further $200 billion in Chinese imports that will be hit with tariffs. And, uh, you know, we're starting to get into territory now where consumer goods are getting covered by these tariffs. We've got things like handbags in there. Uh, fridges are in there, digital cameras, uh, mobile phones, interestingly, aren't. But, uh, yeah, so the, the Trump administration has upped the ante overnight. Uh, the Chinese said that, uh, that the tariffs are totally unacceptable. They didn't, however, say how they would respond. Huh. Right. <laughs> TikTok, we're waiting. Christina, come on in on this. Uh, we have moved really beyond that heated rhetoric uh, coming between certainly out of the United States and President Trump. Actions are now being taken. How do you see it playing out? I'm going to go a little further than Andrew and say that we are definitely involved in a trade war. Um, this is this next step, which actually won't go into play until September. They need a 60-day period for comments on these proposed tariffs. Um, 
this is going to hit home. This is going to hit consumers. And so I think what you're seeing going into the elections in November is that we want to avoid having consumers be concerned about prices and how that's going to hurt them. Um, and we just saw this afternoon that the Senate uh, had a vote on whether they, a non-binding vote on whether they think that President Trump should continue being so aggressive with tariffs. Um, and it was 88 to 11 was the vote. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think you see more and more people are people, politicians, uh, office holders are concerned about how this is going to start affecting us here at home. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we're looking at it from a lot of different ways. Andrew, how much of the what's going on between the United States and China is really more about intellectual property that the Chinese have allegedly or have taken from the United States, especially when it comes to technology companies? Well, that was certainly the starting point uh, for this whole conflict. Uh, in the spring, the administration started investigating Beijing's approach towards intellectual property and, and found that, uh, you know, China rampantly abuses American uh, intellectual property rights. I don't think you're going to find a lot of people in the business community that uh, disagree with that finding. Um, they're just not in favor of the solution that's being proposed. But I would even back up further and, and say that, you know, this is certainly there's certainly uh, trade tensions happening right now, but you can even back up further. I mean, this is a clash of basic economic uh, models that we're seeing here. Um, some people would say that, that it was inevitable, but uh, um, yeah, it goes deeper than just the trade stuff, certainly. Yeah, that's that's a good point, uh, Christina, that it is deeper than just trade. You know, it's interesting. You've seen the United States, President Trump, you know, basically go after the Chinese program, you know, to be dominant in a lot of industries, right? Made in China 2025, uh, you know, kind of picking at uh, the state subsidies or state support, financial support of development of a lot of technology industries within China. Uh, But you know what? They're allowed to have their domestic policy. So are we, no? Definitely. I definitely agree with that. Um, And I think what we see going on is that the more we uh, have this global supply chain uh, where Americans are sending products back and forth with China trying to produce things, uh, you're going to see a lot of of issues with intellectual property. However, we are also sending mixed messages on this. Uh, The Commerce Department just came out and uh, allowed ZTE, the telecommunications firm, to pay a fine to start doing business here in the U.S. So if we're so concerned about intellectual property, we need to hold that line. Um, we can't start sending mixed messages to China that this is appropriate and this isn't. Right. You know, Andrew, how much of this is President Trump huffing and puffing and then backing off? Just got about 40 seconds here. Oh, gosh. Well, there's a lot of huffing and puffing <laughs> happening. Um, but, you know, you this know, is what I he think, does, right? Yeah. He often talks very strong and then he backs backpedals. Yeah, this is feeling pretty real now, though. Yeah. I and mean, we've got we've got we've got almost fifty billion dollars uh, in play, and uh, as was mentioned, I mean, we could have two hundred fifty billion in play uh, actually implemented at the end of August. So this is getting real. 
Yeah, it's fascinating, too, the timing, certainly with the midterms just a few months away and how some of the products that are going to be targeted or are being targeted by China play into states that, you know, went in favor of President Trump. And we'll we'll, we'll start to see if there's any kind of reaction along those lines. Um, Andrew, thank you. Andrew Mayetta, global trade and economy reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in Washington. And our thanks to Christina Vittori, associate professor of political science at West Virginia University, on the phone from Morgantown. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, Carol Masser in our New York studio right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And back with us is Abe Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. He joins us uh, on the phone in New York City. Hey, great to have you back with us. Um, Interesting, you know, of course, we're talking a lot about this trade war and the tensions, increasing tensions between, in particular, the United States and China, but really the U.S. and all of its allies, it feels like, when it comes to trade. Uh, You say so far it's just noise, but we are seeing tariffs be, you know, put on items and we're getting the list of items. Yeah, when I say noise, I mean um, relative to the economy, the numbers we're talking about, although they are in, you know, it's the big B word, Yeah. Um, in, re- in relation to the total economy and the amount that we, um, that the United States has on the table in terms of trade with other nations, it's, um, I, that's why I just say it's kind of noise. It's not that large of a right. impact right now. I mean, definitely a psychological impact. You can see that in the stock market and probably number one topic of conversation on most <laughs> business, you know, new shows. Is, we got to do it. You know, yeah. Well, what do you think is more important? What's the smarter conversation to have right now about the investment environment, Abe? Well, I was just basically obsessed with the uh, Thai soccer team in the cave all week, so I haven't really been paying attention, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, what we're really looking at, we're, Centerstone investors are, we are very long-term investors, so we try to separate um, the material from the immaterial, so kind of looking through the mm. noise, so to speak. And, uh, you know, one of the, I guess, top-down things that we are, um, you know, kind of paying attention to is the uh, rising level of short-term interest rates in the United States. Um, and, you know, because, you know, oftentimes, more often than not, that does have a, uh, a pronounced effect on stock prices. It changes the discount rates people use on their on their um, discounted cash flow models, and, you know, it can and has had, at least in the past, um, rising rates that has, has had a, an impact on stock prices. So, uh, you know, we're kind of like watching that, um, and, and, and less, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really spending too much time on the day-to-day kind of yeah. noise coming out of uh, Washington or Brussels. I think that's interesting when you talk about the rate environment. I mean, the implications could mean what specifically, and what would that mean potentially in terms of investment actions? Well, you know, here the where it can have an impact is it's coinciding with all of this uh, macro noise and the midterm elections that are going to be, you know, that's going to be a lot more noise and then the Supreme Court thing. And um, what it what it, what rising rates has done is provide a um, safe harbor for people who just don't want to deal with it. Now you can sit there and earn two to three percent in cash now, 
uh, the first time in you know over a decade that you could you can do that. Right. So I think that mostly it just act, it serves to um, as an alternate uh, as an option which people haven't really had for so long. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good point. You you're actually I think I can't think was it yesterday somebody mentioned the same thing that you know for so long you wouldn't even consider it now, you know that is an investment option. I want to talk about some of the names that you find interesting in. Uh, you know, the global space. And one name that you like is Praxar. Uh, And uh, it's a U.S. listed name, chemical atmospheric gases, you know, oxygen, nitrogen. I think they're up about 5%. What's what's your thinking about this one? Well, um, the the Praxar is an example of of a type of business we like. Um, Actually, we don't own Praxar. We we own the uh, French listed. That's right, Air Liquide. Yeah. Air Liquide, yeah, that's right. And um, they're effectively, I mean, they're kind of like, it's 30,000 foot perspective, they're basically the same company. But um, what, that's just an example of how when you go outside the United States, because of, I think, this noise and the, you know, uh, politics and other, you know, unfortunately, terrorism and all that kind of stuff, too, um, it served to dampen um, the prices of comparable non-U.S. listed companies when they when you compare them to the United uh, listed companies in the United States, and that's a good example. Praxer trades roughly at a twenty percent premium to Air Liquide, um, even though they do virtually the same thing. So you like uh, Air Liquide you know. better? Well, we own Air Liquide. We don't own Praxer. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, Air Liquide's a fine company. It's got very good. Uh, management team, and they're ver- they've just recently completed an acquisition in the United States that makes them even more strong. Um, they have 15% exposure to China, so there's, they're they're kind of plugged into um, global growth and um, and, um, and and very long-lived assets as well. These mm-hmm. in fact these uh, this equipment that they use to separate the air, these plants last for 40 years plus. So, um, yeah, very long with business. Similar thinking, um, Abe, applies to you take a, a comparison between Walmart, obviously a huge global retailer based here in the United States, um, to a Swedish retailer, grocery company. Uh, and you like the Swedish name more than you do Walmart. Yeah, although I, mean, I used to own Walmart, but now I own Target instead in the United States. And but the the comparison I think that you're making is is very uh, it's very appropriate, similar yeah. to the early key Praxair comparison. So, yeah, we own um, you know Walmart is essentially call it 25 to 30 percent of um, grocery retail in the United States market share wise. Uh, the company in Sweden we own Ica Gruben, that's I C A. Mm-hmm. Um, it's comparable in terms of the product offering of a Walmart, but they have forty percent market share, so it's even more dominant. But Sweden is population wise the size of LA, right? So it's a smallish company that probably lot, most fund managers can't even buy, uh, value managers. Um, but in this case, uh, Walmart trades for close to twenty times earnings and and Ica's closer to fourteen times earnings. For essentially the same kind of market dominance, um, actually, Eco you could argue is even more dominant, having twice the market share of its next largest competitor. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So as, yeah. As, as as global, you know, Centerstone is a global organization. We can, right. You know, that's very helpful, so we can kind of see these differences and, and move our allocations. Yeah. Uh, appropriately. It's look. It's interesting to to look at the the comparisons between uh, those names. Abe, thank you, Abe Dishpande. He's founder, chief ex- investment officer at Centerstone Investors, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.